I don't know about you guys, but over the quarantine, I found myself with a whole lot of time to watch a whole lot more TV. Um, I'm not normally like a TV person. I enjoy watching TV, but I don't like go and seek it out. So that means I don't have a show. So that usually means that I'll watch whatever it is that my wife is watching at the moment. Uh, and that normally means I'll come in around season two, episode seven of a, a sitcom or a docudrama and kind of have to like Wikipedia to get caught up real quick to figure out where we are in the show. And we'll just uh, binge watch the rest of that thing later on. But we do often come back to are two different cooking shows that show up on Netflix a lot. The first one is The Great British Baking Show, right? And The Great British Baking Show is, is really fantastic for us to watch. You normally, have, they bring 12 contestants from all over the UK into this tent where they have like a weekend to make three types of dishes, and it's a competition, and they're normally really great bakers. Like, I don't understand half of the words that they use in this show. Uh, and they're the type of people who, like, they get really down on themselves if their meringue doesn't have the right consistency, or their pastry is a little soggy on the bottom, right? They're just really disappointed with themselves if that's the case. The second show that we watch and we really enjoy is called Nailed It. And it's at the completely other end of the spectrum, right, when it comes to baking. It's three amateur bakers that they bring in and they say, here are the tools, good luck, make a cake in the shape of a tea party, right? And we get the benefit of watching them just crash and burn as they attempt to make whatever it is that they get put in place in front of them that week. Now, I don't know how I came into this reputation around our house, but my three daughters have said, Mom is someone who could be a real contender, right, on the Great British Baking Show, whereas Dad should really just go try his luck on Nailed It, right? The reality is I don't like to fail. I don't like to mess up. I don't like to get it wrong because failure hurts. You guys know this because there have been opportunities in your life where you have come up against failure and it's hurt, right? So you've had moments where you've failed. You're on your third attempt for your driver's license uh, test and you fail again. You're on your next attempt at a relationship and you've failed again. Failure can lead to not getting into the college of your dreams. Failure can lead to what we so often see as the end of something. It feels like the end of the career. The end of a relationship. The end of a dream. We're continuing on with our series called Conversations with Jesus. And last week, Pastor Jason started us off with a conversation that happened towards the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Where I want to take us this week in our conversation that happened between Jesus and the people he talked to and interacted with, came out changed, happens at the very end of his 
earthly ministry. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 26. And while you're making your way there, I want to set the scene for you. Uh, Jesus has just finished the upper room experience with his disciples. That moment where they have the Passover meal, which Jesus then transforms into the Lord's Supper. And it's at that moment where Jesus tells his disciples, and they, maybe they get it for the really first time, I am going to die. That's a heavy thing for anyone to take in. And so what Jesus does is he takes his disciples from the upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's here in the garden that Jesus prays. Now, we're going to start in verse 36, but I'm also reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. So if it looks a little different than what you've got in front of you, that's why. But this is a version that I normally teach the middle school students here at Wayside Chapel. So if it's a little different than what you're used to, it's in the CSB. Verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And one time we took our our kids, our three daughters, to this restaurant here in San Antonio called Biggs Burger Joint. And we really like Biggs because it has this huge grassy field that you can just like let your kids loose in, right? And there's a lot less judgment when your kids are running around a huge grassy field than when they're running around the buffet table, all right? And so this works for us. <laughs> and we had just placed our order at this front counter. And if you place your order, you're supposed to, to walk out into the grassy field. And as we do, uh, like most of you parents often do when you're out and about, you do a head count, right? And you go one, two, uh-oh, right? <laughs> We're missing one. And at that same moment, over the PA system that normally announces when your food is ready, we hear what the parents of Ruth Come to the front counter, please. The parents of Ruth to the front counter. It's when my wife and I exchange looks like, no, okay. And I turn around and I walk in and I see this beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed third daughter of mine just in tears at this front counter. And I bend down and I I give her a hug and I tell her it's okay. And I thank the person behind the counter and kind of walk over and get out of the way. And I'm like... Ruth, baby girl, we took 10 steps away from you like to get out that door over there. How did you get so lost? And how were you so emotionally damaged within those 10 steps? Like, it just, are you okay, right? The disciples maybe felt that way at one point when Jesus would leave them. Often in Scripture, we see moments where it just tells us that Jesus went off by himself to pray. And you can imagine the disciples, the first few times this happens, like waking up by the the campsite to expecting to see this man who they've committed their lives to following, just gone. (laughs) And maybe at one moment they wake up and they search frantically, seeing if Jesus had left like a note in the dust, BRB, gone to pray, you know, or something. And maybe after a few times of this experience happening over and over again, they just wake up and go, no, okay, 
Jesus will be back eventually. So this is a little bit of a different scene this time. Because instead of Jesus leaving the disciples to pray, he actually invites them with him. Look with me at verse 37. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. There are so many times in Scripture where Jesus makes requests of the disciples. Where he tells them, you go and feed these 5,000 people before he himself miraculously divides the bread and the fish. He tells them, you go and heal the sick. He tells them, you go and spread the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here. Now, I'm willing to be wrong on this one, but this to me seems like a very uh, unique time where Jesus is not making a request of the disciples to further his earthly ministry, but is instead making a request that's very personal. That is, for him. Remain here. Stay awake with me. There have been many times in my life where I have needed someone to stay with me because I was filled with sorrow. There have been many times where I was that person who was with a friend because they needed someone to be with them in a time of their sorrow. And as both the giver and the receiver of the ministry of presence, I can feel this need on a very personal level. But unlike Jesus, I, I did not know what would be coming out ahead of me. I just knew that I was in pain. Jesus knew he was about to endure the cross. Jesus knew he was about to be tortured and spat upon and falsely accused and left by the very disciples who had promised to follow after them. He could so clearly see the future that was out ahead. And so because of that reason, he is sorrowful. So he makes this request, stay awake, pray with me. So what happens next? Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he asked Peter, So you couldn't stay awake with me one hour Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Jesus goes and asks God, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. We know that this cup is the cup of God's wrath poured out on sinners, and we know that it was not possible for this cup to be taken from Jesus because this is how salvation was going to come to us. 
You see, God made the world and everyone and everything in it. And because he made the world, he has the right to tell us how to live. And God's law for us is perfection. Live a perfect life. But we as sinners cannot live a perfect life. We fail. We mess up. We sin. And all our sin does for us is earns us an eternity separated from God. Punishment in hell. But God does not leave us in this helpless estate. Instead, he sent Jesus to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, to die the sacrificial death on the cross that we deserve to die, but that he took in our place, and to rise again from the dead three days later to show us that he had power over sin, he had power over death, and that if we put our faith and our trust into him, that we too would be saved from death, not just death physically, but death eternally. And that we might be made right with God so that we could live life to the fullest, both here now and in eternity. Jesus knows this is the glorious outcome that will happen afterwards. But right now, Jesus makes this request of his friends. Stay awake with me. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. So again, Jesus leaves to go and to pray. Verse 42. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. A friend of mine posted on Instagram a while back, first week of quarantine, wake up at the normal time, get dressed in the normal way so that you can set yourself up for a great day. Fifth week of quarantine, trying to decide if I need a shirt for this Zoom meeting or not. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but quarantine messed up everybody's sleep schedule at our house. The adults are just about getting back to normal life as we are waking up and going back to work. But my kids are on their eighth year of summer, is what it feels like. And they just are constantly awake. And it being Father's Day, I'm reflecting back and I'm thinking on all the times when I was just holding each of my three kids at ungodly hours of the night praying they would just go back to sleep and I could not keep my eyes open. And here more recently, I've been walking into their bedroom and going, it is 11 p.m. Go to sleep. What are you doing? You guys know what it feels like to be so tired that you cannot keep your eyes open. And you can imagine the first time Jesus comes back and tells his disciples, I need you to stay awake with me, that they kind of do that thing where they bounce themselves awake and maybe they're trying to think, okay, I got to stay awake here, right? They weren't just resting their eyes like us dads have often said we were doing, right? They were actually sleeping. (laughs) 
And so they get up and maybe they're, they're hitting their face a little bit or they're, they're pacing in the garden trying to think, okay, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. But they can't. Propped up against a tree or sitting down by a rock attempting to pray, trying to pray, they fail. They do not do this one task that Jesus asks of them. And now this time when Jesus comes back and sees them sleeping again, he doesn't even wake them up. He just sees that they're sleeping and goes back to pray. Verse 44. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Have you ever napped so hard that you woke up and like forgot what year it was, right? Those are the best kinds of naps, right? But have you ever also woken up and found yourself dazed and confused because you were immediately faced with bad news? A couple weeks ago, I woke up and I saw that my mom was calling me. And it's way earlier than mom normally calls me, which usually means something's wrong. My family is not uh, unused to bad circumstances and tragedy. In the last 10 years, uh, I've lost my father, all four of my grandparents. My wife has lost all four of her grandparents. My aunt is going through lung cancer right now. Her husband, my uncle, is going through esophageal cancer right now my other aunt has just gotten over chemo for mouth cancer that she's been going through I've broken my leg my wife has herniated a disc which left her bedridden for a month plus Uh, we are very familiar with the ER because between my three kids we've got five broken bones uh, one of which required surgery our middle daughter had open heart surgery 10 weeks old to save her life we we are familiar with circumstances that are hard and rough, but I was not prepared for the death of my older brother this last two weeks. And I want to thank you because a lot of you have reached out to me and let me know that you were praying for me and for our family, and we greatly appreciate that. Waking up to bad news is not something I wish on anybody. But can you imagine the disciples here and the pain that they must be feeling after Jesus requests of them, stay awake and pray. And they fail. And they fail again. And they fail again. And when Jesus wakes them up this third time, what he says to them is, my betrayer is here. It's time for me to die. Our lives will be filled with failure. 
We will all have moments when we let those people who are closest to us down. We will all have moments where we will fail ourselves, where we will let ourselves down. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, what we cannot do is allow these failures to be the end of the story. And in our faith, we know that when failure comes, it is not the end, but rather it is a chance to watch God at work because failure highlights God's grace. Think about these men who fell asleep on Jesus when he'd asked them to do this one simple task. These were men who had failed Jesus before. They had failed over and over, being unable to cast out demons, being unable to figure out what they ought to be doing and arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven instead of serving the kingdom of heaven right in front of them. These were disciples who failed often and yet. It would be these same disciples who Jesus would entrust the great commission to. It would be these same men who Jesus would say, you take the message of love and grace to the world. I am entrusting you to do this for me. These were disciples who would know and understand what grace is because they themselves needed grace. They were the people who could know how heavy of a failure could feel and how wonderful God's grace could be. And I think the people who ought to go with God's message of grace are those who know and understand what it means to fail. So what can we do in order to allow failure to highlight God's grace The first thing that we can do is we can be gracious with those who fail. You're going to be surrounded by people who will fail you because they are people. We will all fail and sin. There will be people who will break promises. There will be people who will hurt your feelings. There will be people who will fail you when you really need them to come through. Be gracious to them because you would want them to be gracious to you when you fail. And parents, this means it needs to be okay when your kids fail you because they are going to. Don't set them so high up on a pedestal of success that when the inevitable failure comes, On top of the fall is added shame and guilt. Instead, cultivate an environment in your home that's okay with someone trying their best and getting it wrong. Look for the potential lesson to learn rather than adding shame to the attempt. This means when you see someone online posting something, 
and making a mistake in that, instead of screenshotting it and texting it to five or six different friends or sharing it all over the place, instead, pick up the phone. Call them. Invite them to explain their heart in what's going on. Check up on that person. In a world where one tweet can destroy a career, let's be followers of Jesus who don't crucify someone's character over 180 characters. What else can you do? You can be gracious to yourself when you fail. I like going to the gym. This is a new and recent development for me because I didn't play sports in middle school. I didn't play sports in high school. I played ultimate frisbee in college, all right? So like going to the gym is a new thing for me. And you have to be okay with failure when you go to the gym because sometimes a coach or a trainer will literally tell you, do this movement until failure, meaning do it until you can't anymore. And that bothers me because I don't like to fail. And my most recent attempt at what I'm trying to do, a skill I'm trying to learn, is called a double under, and I hate them. (laughs) It's a jump rope thing, all right? And it seems easy. You take a jump rope, you jump once, and you pass pass the rope under yourself once. But a double under is when you jump once and you pass the rope underneath you twice. It sounds simple in the explaining, but it is difficult in the attempt. And I had a friend of mine say, well, Ronald, what you need to do is you need to record yourself so that you can see where you're getting it wrong, assuming that I'm getting it wrong all over the place, but you need to see where you're getting it wrong. Are you kicking your feet out this way or that way? And so I I took my friend's advice and I started recording myself trying to do this movement and this is what happened to me. I'm at the gym. I've been practicing for about 30 minutes or so. And there is frustration all over the place. And as I get going again, that guy... (laughs) Doing it like it's absolutely nothing. I'm no more than 15 feet away from him. He can see me. And he just has the audacity to just do it right there. When you fail, be gracious with yourself. God tells us that he knows we are going to fail. Maybe you are the person who is completely okay when other people mess up. You're fine when someone else doesn't deliver when you ask them to. It doesn't bother you when other people fail. But what bothers you, what you can't get over, is when you make the mistake, when you fail, when you mess up. May I remind you that we are told to love our neighbors as 
ourselves. Imagine saying to someone, I love you, but I hate every part of me. We cannot love our neighbor if we hate ourselves. God is gracious to us when we sin. He accepts us when we come back to him after we have failed. When we return to him with a repentant heart, he graciously wraps us into his arms and forgives us and separates us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Why then do we have such a hard time forgiving ourselves? When you fail and when you mess up, Be gracious to yourself. When others fail you, turn to God. Don't forget the opportunity that you have to turn to Jesus when other people fail you. As you read in the Psalms, you see over and over again the psalmist talking about the many enemies that he has who are against him. His many foes, he says they multiply and it seems like they're just more and more. And what David does over and over again in the Psalms is cry out to God to let him know of his frustrations and to ask God to save him and to be with him from those who have failed him. God expects us to come to him in prayer. And I have found personally that when I'm dealing with a situation that is tough and someone has failed me, the best thing I do is to journal my frustrations. A, no one's going to read that except me and God, and so I can say whatever I want to in that situation. And I can journal about it. But then later on, I can also read what was happening in that moment and see what God did to take that situation and turn it to his glory when others fail you turn to god and when you fail you turn to god in the midst of our own shortcomings let's not be complacent because there's a big difference between forgiving yourself and being uncaring about whether or not you're living a life that honors god We're told that God knows when we sin. We're told that if we try to convince ourselves that we don't have sin, that we're making God into a liar. Let's be honest with God when we fail. Remember that Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, instead of running to God, they hid from God. God knew where they were. God knew what they had done. God knew them better than they knew themselves, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Instead of running from God and feeling like we can't return to him because of our sin, let's run to him because of our sin. Turn back to God and repent because of our failure. When we fail, let's turn to God. God tells us if there's something that we lack, we can ask him. 
If we realize that our failures are because of a lack of self-control, we should ask God for his Holy Spirit to give us more self-control. If we feel like our failures are because of a lack of love or lack of kindness or gentleness, then we should ask God for his Holy Spirit to give us those things so that we can live a life that honors him. Do we find ourselves hating ourselves because of our failures, because of our inability to close the deal, then we should ask God to help us love ourselves like he loves us. Maybe you find yourself looking at your life like the great British baking show. So upset and so disappointed in the small, minor details. Let me invite you to instead take more of a nailed-it approach. To read scripture, to look at what God would have us to do, and to boldly pursue it. And if we fail in the attempt, we observe, we turn to God, we ask for repentance, and we continue to live for the God who made us, who loves us, and who knows us. Instead of letting failure be the end of of a story, let's allow failure to highlight God's grace. Would you all pray with me, please? Our Lord and our God, we thank you so much for loving us first, for proving your great love for us by sending us Jesus God, thank you for him living the perfect life we could not live, dying the death on the cross that we all deserve to die, taking our punishment. And God, we thank you that he rose again to life to show us that we have a future and a hope if we put our faith and trust in him. God, help us to live lives that show your grace and that we don't see failure as the end of the story, but rather as opportunities for you to shine. God, thank you for accepting us when we come back to you with a repentant heart. For when we sin, instead of turning us away, God, you forgive us. Lord, help us to live lives that honor you and show off your grace. God, it's in the name of Jesus. I ask that we would be those type of Christians. Amen. Thank you all so much for worshiping with us today. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.